What's up, Seamus? Will, good to see you. It's another day of the Goop Fellas. Yeah. Well, we're talking about subject today, which is really near and dear to my heart. Um, we had an amazing conversation with Donna Jackson Nakazawa, um, who is an award-winning journalist and internationally recognized speaker. Her new book, The Angel and the Assassin, is really amazing. It talks about the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and human emotion. And I recently just lost my uncle to glioblastoma, who uh, someone who was really, really important to me in my life. And I didn't really know anything about glioblastoma before. He, I mean, I knew that John McCain had died from it, but I didn't know anything about it as one of the most aggressive forms of cancer. And now, after having read her book and spoken with her, um, I have a very different kind of understanding of of glioblastoma as an autoimmune dysfunction because mm-hmm. um, she talks about these microglia as, as the immune system of the brain, which is something that is a really radically new uh, notion in modern medicine, and that they can be both the protectors, the angels, but also the assassins, just like when we think of immune dysfunction, autoimmune mm-hmm. dysfunction that you and I talk about all the time, playing out in the brain. And mm-hmm. and that's exactly what was happening with my uncle. It was a, man, an amazing conversation, so much to learn. I cannot speak highly enough about her book, The Angel and the Assassin, really just incredible. Yeah. And today we're really going to get super nerdy, guys, but in a very approachable way. We're not going to scare you away, but we're going to teach you I mean, Donna's going to teach us, but yeah. what we have learned through the show is that how inflammation impacts our brain health, you're going to have a whole new understanding of mental health and ways to to support and allow and support that microglial cells that we're going to learn is that angel and assassin to, yeah. to make our microglia angels. All right. Well, strap on your seatbelt. We're about to get in there with Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Donna Jackson Nakazawa, thank you so much for being on Goopfellas. Such a pleasure to be here with you guys. I love your book. It is so beautifully written. You know, I, I think sometimes health books in our space can be maybe kind of dry or redundant. And the way that you write, I guess because you are a journalist, so you actually know how to write very, very well, uh, your eloquence with words makes this so much more fascinating and really makes it what it is, which is very fascinating. So can you tell me, tell us about The Angel and the Assassin, how the book came to be? Because I know a lot of it came from your own journey with Guillaume Bray. If you could kind of start there. Yeah, of course. Um, more than a decade ago, I was recovering from Guillain-Barre, which is similar to MS, um, which you know, can lead to full and sudden paralysis. I had it not once, but twice. And the second time, it was a year-long recovery. Um, and during that time, even as I was slowly regaining my ability to leave behind the wheelchair and the walker and the cane and just get to my mailbox, I noticed that even as my body was starting to recover little by little, um, things were different in my brain. And I posed this to my doctors, and I have an awesome team at Johns Hopkins, life-saving medical team, who've put me back together a few times. But on this one issue, at that time, we were really dealing in an era of science in which we believe, for lots of reasons that we can get into, that the brain and body functioned as separate entities. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, I was raising children. I'd find that I'd try to tie my daughter's shoes, and I'd be struggling with, wait, you know, how do we do bunny loops or 
doing kitchen table math with my son, and I think, wow, you know, seven and eight, but let's think here. My brain was just stuttering a lot. Words were hard to come by. Um, I'd cut up watermelon for my kids, and I'd stare at it and think, okay, come on, Donna, you, you know what this is. And I remember reading Harry Potter to my son from bed. Um, I came to know that book by heart. Um, and that scene where the Dementors come in and they just kind of steal your brain away mm-hmm. and all of your good thoughts and clear thoughts disappear into smoke and dread. I felt, wow, you know, the Dementors have come for me. But the thinking at that time was that, of course, patients with autoimmune disease had some cognitive issues and anxiety and maybe mood changes because being ill is depressing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we miss the fact that the brain is actually functioning as an immune organ. It's in a constant conversation with our body. Mm-hmm. And so as science began to reveal these big changes. It's really a story of contrast between what we thought we knew 10 years ago and what we know now. Mm-hmm. I wanted to set out and tell this story. Well, how are our brain and body talking? What are the scientists saying in this new golden era of neuroscience? And what are they talking about? And how does that change our understanding of our human health? Mm-hmm. So, so for so many years, it seems like we were kind of locked in this idea that the brain is encased in the blood-brain barrier that's impermeable, essentially, and then it's held within this hard box, and it's completely separate and doesn't have its own immune system. It's completely separate from the rest of what's going on in the body. And I love the way you you, you start the book with this incredible, very powerful um, uh, sentence that just totally blew me away. You're talking about research in 2008. You say, research revealed that patients with MS also experienced changes in their ability to remember things that were several times more likely to suffer from depression and bipolar disorder than individuals, individuals without MS. So here is like this jumping off point where we're starting to see that, wait a second, there's a correlation the brain is not separate and disconnected from the body, but the brain is actually part of, mm-hmm. and mental health is part of overall general health, and it's not something that should be stigmatized. And I love how you take that on, and that's, to mm-hmm. me, just one of the most powerful statements in the book. Thank you. And, you know, we had seen epidemiologically, right, for a long time that patients with lupus and Crohn's disease and MS and bacterial infections mm-hmm. um, and gum disease were more likely to develop disorders um, like depression and anxiety and even cognitive changes in Alzheimer's. So if the brain is in this box and it's not immune privileged and it's separate, you know, we can thank Descartes, right, Mm -hmm. 300 years ago for some of that early philosophical thinking and early anatomists who thought the blood-brain barrier was the only possible passage between the body and the brain. Well, all of those guys miss the fact that in the brain is a little cell called microglia. And these little cells were noted and named by the early school of neuroscientists in the 1920s as very boring housekeeper cells. They were thought to just come and cater to the needs of neurons, the kind of the way that an entourage caters to the needs of a movie star. You get sick, you're a neuron, and microglia will come like a good doctor and pump you up a little bit or cart you away. They were little robots. And 
And, and in scientific labs, researchers kind of hated them because they would get in the Petri dishes, they would get in their cultures, and they would ruin experiments. And so no one really looked at these cells more closely. For almost 100 years, they were more or less ignored by the research community. Mm-hmm. And yet, about 10 years ago, it, it turned out in a lab at Harvard that two female scientists took a closer look at them, and they found that not only are they functioning as the white blood cells of the brain, when they are overactivated, just like our immune system can be overtaxed and overwhelmed, mm-hmm. they create their own kind of neuroinflammation in the brain, spitting out neurotoxins and morphing from these good doctors into these big, bushy Pac-Men and taking out synaptic connections, the same synaptic connections that we know from brain scans are very important to cognition and Mm -hmm. mood. So that was just a big game changer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're passionate about helping patients and individuals and families and communities, it's just a story that had to be told. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're bringing up this point uh, in the book so beautifully that mental health is not separate from physical health. Mental health is physical health. And you're really diving deep in a fascinating way about the science of how inflammation is linked to mental health issues. So what you just said about the microglial cells, what that's applicable to so many people out there that are listening, whether you're, whether you're talking about anxiety, depression, brain fog, to auto, neurological autoimmune issues. So I, I love the way that you talked about the microglial cells and how it was originally lumped as a glial cell. Can you explain that, like how it's so different from the other glial cells and the importance of it? Yeah, great question. So um, so in this early era of neuroscience, a um, uh, hundred years ago, really, um, there were known to be clearly uh, four little cells in the brain that were not neurons. So neurons, you know, we think of as the flashy darlings of the research world, and they are responsible for firing and wiring together our synapses and our connectome in the brain. So most of us know what neurons are and that synapses create those connections between neurons. Um, But there were these four other cells that were all called glial cells, and they astrocytes um, and Schwann cells, and I always missay this so you can help me, oligodendrocytes. Yes, sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah. You did it. Yeah. So, and microglia. Microglia Mm. were the smallest of these four little cells, and again, they were thought to be these boring housekeepers. Now, all of them were thought to derive during gestation, very early in the womb, in those first seven, eight, nine days, from nerve cells or myelin cells, right? So they were thought to be important in the brain because they catered again to neurons, but what researchers missed was that microglia are not glial cells at all. They, on the seventh to eighth day of gestation in the womb, when all the different cells are differentiating, you know, stem cells are differentiating, right? Some of them are going to become skin and hair, and some of them are going to become organs, and some of them are going to become brain cells or glial cells. They weren't becoming glial cells. They differentiate from stem cells in that first week of gestation, and they break off from white blood cells 
our immune cells and they rise up into the brain. And yet we just didn't know it, Mm -hmm. that we have thought, oh, the brain and body aren't talking to each other. The immune system Mm -hmm. rules everything right up to the blood-brain barrier. But then the brain is in that box that you mentioned, and the immune system isn't ruling it. Well, we miss that microglia are cousins to our white blood cells, and they are actually ruling the brain. Mm Mm-hmm the same way that white blood cells are moderating healthy immune function in the body. So we didn't need to have white blood cells in the brain because the microglia, their cousins, are already policing the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that when we have immune dysfunction in the body where we have an overproduction of white blood cells, which obviously we talk a lot about inflammation and you talk about it in the book as well, where acute inflammation is important. You're, you, you, you get an infection in your finger, your finger swells up. Um, while it's uncomfortable, that's actually part of the healing process. But when we have uh, chronic inflammation that's being that where the immune system is misfiring over and over again, we have an overproduction of, of inflammatory cytokines and white blood cells. Essentially, that's the same thing that's happening in the brain, and that's why the microglia are these angels and assassins. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, no, I 100%. I like the way you said that. That's right. And so the thing is that we neuroinflammation in the brain looks a little bit different than it does in the body. Just what you said, inflammation in the body, we think of red hot, painful, and swollen. But inflammation mm-hmm. in the brain, you can't really have inflammation like that in the brain on an ongoing um, basis because of the skull, right? If, right. The, if every time you had inflammation in the brain, the brain swelled, that would be really problematic because you have this skull box. Mm-hmm. So inflammation in the brain, we now understand, or what we might call neuroinflammation, looks different. And when we have neuroinflammatory changes, it's because microglia are spitting out inflammatory factors and overpruning synaptic connections. So it's a little bit different, but now that we understand that, we have to kind of rewrite our understanding and our thinking about the origin story mm-hmm. for suffering of the mind. Mm-hmm. So when we, when I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because we obviously we we've, we've been talking a lot about uh, the gut brain correlation on, on our podcast and something that, that Will and I think about a lot. Um, we we think of autoimmune having a lot of autoimmune dysfunction having a lot of different different drivers. One of them being um, gut health, which can be affected by lifestyle uh, choices, by any number of things. Are these these the same sorts of underlying factors that can impact um, brain health and uh, the same kind of like misfiring of the brain's immune system? I think that we're starting to understand that all of the different factors in our environment, the world in which we live in, the world we create, you know, whether it's through what we eat, um, the gut microbiome, the relationships we have, the way in which we care for our body and our brain, all of these things are affecting um, the activity of microglia. And we do understand um, that changing the gut microbiome does seem to have an effect on the activity of microglia. So I wanted to say that a lot of this research is early. Mm -hmm. Um, There are things we know and there are things at the edges of our understanding that we don't know completely, 
But um, I worked with two of the leading scientists in the area of fasting mimicking and, mm-hmm. and intermittent fasting diets, um, Mark Matson at Hopkins and Walter Longo out at USC. And interestingly, when they can help reboot the microbiome through intermittent fasting, which I know you guys know a ton about, um, it seems to help reduce in the brain, the overactivity of microglia. So we haven't worked out every detail of how the brain and body are talking, Mm -hmm. but we know what they're talking about. They're talking about, hey, the brain is going, hey, down there, body. Mm -hmm. Is everything cool? Right. (laughs) You know, and the body is going, hey, up there, brain, not so cool. Got some weird stuff in the microbiome here or dealing with a lot of toxic stressors and emotional stressors or have a little infection and not looking good, and the brain is going, okay, you know, we'll rev up activity here. And, and we don't understand all the mechanisms, but we know absolutely that gut health and the microbiome are capable of signaling the brain in many different ways, you know, of course, through serotonin, um, the vagus nerve we're starting to see that the mm-hmm. microbiome may signal microglia through the vagus nerve, which is fascinating. Yeah, that is fascinating. Right. So we just, we're at the beginning of this new understanding, and I guess my purpose is similar to yours, and that is just let's, let's get this bigger gestalt understanding mm-hmm. of how everything that affects physical health affects brain health. Let's help on, uh, people to understand that we're the drivers. This gives us a lot of agency. Mm-hmm. And, and micro changes matter. Yeah. You mentioned when the microglial cells, the, 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 the title of your book, the dichotomous sort of angel and assassin, when it's an angel, I love the way that you explained sort of this careful, the, the processes, these like arms coming from these microglial cells, <laughs> checking on the neurons. I, mm-hmm. Can you explain to people about that? Because it's really, our body's so awesome and you explained it very well. Well, you know, the first time I saw these cells, I was in a lab at Broad Institute, which is a a multidisciplinary um, research institute in Boston where you get the best minds from um, MIT and Harvard and Boston Children's, and they all come together to work on complex problems. And they're looking, not surprisingly, at microglia. And I watched these cells um, on a Green and, you know, here they were thought to be these boring cells, cardaway dead cells. And whenever there was any kind of sensed or perceived threat in the brain, they went whooshing across the brain. And I looked at that, at that um, live-action film, and to me, it reminded me of Van Gogh's Starry, Starry Night, like just all of these, of course, they're dyed in fluorescent colors, these green microglial cells, going across the night sky to try to repair and protect the brain. And when you go in really close and you look at what microglia are doing in their, in their healthy state, they are these elegant dancers that, that move through the brain. And, you know, they do check out every neuron and they, they tap on neurons, you know, kind of like a good doctor. I'm mixing my metaphors, but bear with me. You know, um, tap on the knee and, you know, everything good here, good reflexes, or check out a heart rate. And if everything's good, they, they move on. But as I said earlier, if they start to get signals that 
there's distress. Um, if they get overtaxed, the way that immune cells of the body can become overwhelmed and overtaxed with one hit after another, then they do this shift and they go from being this angelic dancer or good doctor in the brain and they morph into that rogue assassin that we also know happens, of course, with the immune system in the body, right? Mm -hmm. So that's when we see them get in this big, bushy state where they literally engulf and digest synaptic material. And you can see the synaptic material, which scientists you know, dye with fluorescent dyes, mm -hmm. red, you can see those that red synaptic material engulfed, digested, and in the belly of that mm. Pac-Man assassin microglia. And I really wanted to show, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't want to leave people with, oh, this is, you know, uh, scary. I wanted to show how scientists are really uncovering pretty extraordinary approaches. Mm -hmm to help calm these overactive microglia now that we understand what they're really doing in mm -hmm. the brain. Yeah. So they behave as nature intended, right, mm -hmm. as those good doctors, as those angels, rather than right. blind assassins. Yeah, I actually just lost my uncle to glioblastoma. And, oh, and as I was reading your book... So sorry. Thank you, yeah. And as I was reading your book... Um, I hadn't, hadn't, I mean, I've thought of cancer as an autoimmune disease before, but I hadn't really thought of it in, in the same way that I thought. I, I lived with RA for many, many years, and I hadn't thought of it in the same kind of, um, as, as almost the same thing that's happening, where, where literally these, these microglia are, are in the most aggressive form attacking the, the cells of the brain and, and, you know, attacking itself and killing it. It was very kind of, for me, really illuminating to read this and to, to it changed the way I thought about the disease and how it had attacked my uncle. I'm so sorry for that. And um, I think that, you know, where we begin to see this kind of loss, right, in families mm -hmm. and communities, we, we know that rates of depression and bipolar and Alzheimer's are all climbing very in very frightening ways, you know, the rate of depression and anxiety in young people and suicide and, um, you know, this tripling rate of suicide attempts in young girls. We're clearly living in a time, just to step out for a minute, you know, we've been mm -hmm. like really micro. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> to step out for a bit and, and to the wider world, like we're living in very difficult Times and one of the things I explore in the Angel and the Assassin is is the ways in which the world may be kind of overtaxing us and and um, how microglia may be contributing to these rising mm -hmm. rates of mm -hmm. cognitive and mood disorders because I believe that if we have a better grasp of the origin story of disorders of the mind. Mm -hmm we have a better chance of resolving them. Mm -hmm. And and even as, you know, um, we've seen this new era, this golden era in brain research over the past decade, it hasn't really translated yet into a new way of thinking about the brain for those patients, for those families mm -hmm. who are walking into their doctor's office and saying, you know, my, my daughter is so depressed or... Um, you know, my son is, is, is suffering with addiction or my uncle has this cancer. Mm -hmm. it, it's just not translating 
we're not closing the gap between science in the lab and science in the clinic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you I just, wanted to put my shoulder yeah, behind the that's wheel. Right. Yeah, you just you just mentioned um, that uh, Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night, and you had another. There's another passage about Van Gogh in the in the book that resonated with me when you were talking about his, his a quote from Van Gogh where he said was describing what it felt like to be sinking into depression. I don't remember exactly what the quote was, but he was at the bottom of a well looking up. And throughout the book, you call on all these different examples of folks that are struggling with whether it's bipolarity, uh, schizophrenia, um, uh, depression, anxiety, and how stigmatized that is because we look at that wholly and separately from physical ailments where it's really easy to talk about so-and-so's type 2 diabetes and so-and-so's uh, um, uh, obesity or, or, or whatever the, the physical ailment might be or cancer. But then when it comes to depression and anxiety, we kind of think that it's it's something that's just a sign of weakness. And I think it's such important work to 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 bring that to the forefront and understand that, as you've just mentioned, you know we're we're dealing with rising rates of 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 suicide, teen suicide, particularly in, in young girls. Um, we we li- we're living in a world where like anxiety is kind of this this silent plague, mm-hmm. and it leads to so many other greater issues of mental well being, and uh, and to see that. Wait a second. The key drivers actually could be very related to so many of these other chronic illnesses that we're that we're addressing. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating. I mean, I don't think that knowing the science gives us such promise because we understand that our mental and physical capacities are not separated. You know, mm-hmm. the emotional and the, and the stressors that we face gradually become physical. We know that. Mm-hmm. And 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 now we also know that the physical gradually becomes emotional, and and for you know it, it, these inflammatory changes in the brain, which are led by microglia, overactivated microglia, and other glial cells play a role as well. Um, it shows up differently in one brain from another. You know, so we give it a hundred different names. We might call it. ADHD or OCD mm-hmm. or anxiety or depression or bipolar or schizophrenia. But we know, for instance, in Alzheimer's, that microglia begin to over-sculpt synaptic connections decades before symptoms of disease develop. So that's a really important part of this science. And mm-hmm. one thing we've known for a long time with autoimmune disease is that these are slow brew disorders. And that's really helpful mm-hmm. for patients because it means we've got to get in. We have to use early diagnostics, early prevention, so that we don't see that kind of slow brew mm-hmm. inflammation in the body. And I think that same big picture idea applies here. Our brain is in this dance with the environment we're in. It's in it's this seventh sense. I when I say Yoni Kipnis, whose work I report on in the book mm-hmm. from UVA, um, puts forth this idea that the brain is the seventh sense. You know, it's mm-hmm. just constantly dancing with the world that we're in and the world that we create. And knowing that and knowing that this slow brew process takes time before mm-hmm. symptoms emerge gives us an entry point into reversing some of these very, very disturbing trends we see in mental health. Yeah, you talk about throughout the book this, uh, the research around this growing genetic 
epigenetic mismatch and how we our genetics haven't changed in like 10,000 years, but yet our world has changed very dramatically in a short period of time. Can you shed some light on that for the, for the listeners and specifically around, I, I've never heard someone explain it like this, this sort of emotional toxin and how that is constantly stimulating our immune system and then we're not exposed to the bacteria and the microbes that we were once were uh, throughout human history. Yeah, so I'll try to break that down. I write a whole chapter about this. I actually think it's one of the most interesting areas of emerging neuroimmune science right now. So we evolved over time to have this stress threat response. Um, You know, if you're in a feudal village 1,500 years ago and you're coming home and you have your rabbit slung over your shoulder and you see a wolf and that wolf wants your rabbit, you're going to go into fight, flight, freeze. And that, over time, in as our body evolved to uh, stay safe and healthy in the world, that fight-flight-freeze response also leads to an activation of cytokines, you know, uh, immune molecules that are going to go out and help fight any kind of pathogen that comes in. And that was really smart over evolutionary time that we evolved to create more of an immune response in response to threats, even if the threat was emotional. And the reason this happened is because, let's say you were attacked by the wolf across evolutionary time, your body would need those cytokines Mm -hmm. to go and fight those microbes and pathogens that might come in through the wound. Now, to add to that, a fascinating area of research is looking at how being ostracized or even being left out on social media Mm -hmm. or unliked repeatedly on social media Mm -hmm. is activating that same threat response. Now, why would that be? It blows my mind. It's because across evolutionary time, just as our body evolved to respond to threats, fight, flight, freeze, with an influx of inflammatory cytokines, Mm -hmm. it also evolved to respond to possible ostracizing Hmm. with this big burst of cytokines because ostracizing across evolutionary time was the most dangerous thing that could happen to you Physically. So if we're Remove. left out, we're left out of the group. We become much more vulnerable because we don't. You're have the vulnerable production. to being attacked by mm-hmm. other tribes, okay. pathogens, infections, lack of food, the wolf, and all of it. So the so immune system has to be on high alert. Has to be on high alert. Uh-huh. So over time, um, we just haven't evolved out of that wow. threat response. That's wild, crazy. Right. So step in uh-huh. social media. Yep. Right. So now, instead of, and I want to credit Step in the FOMO. <laughs> yes. So Chuck Raisin, brilliant neuroimmunologist at mm-hmm. University of Wisconsin, um, is really the leader of this field. And the understanding now is that social media obviously is not the wolf. It's not physical ostracizing. You aren't literally going to be set outside of the hunter-gatherer's tribe and left to die. But it feels like it. Mm -hmm. And so it's stimulating this same threat immune response all the time. And it's what Chuck Raisin calls an evolutionary mismatch between long ago and now. The body keeps responding 
responding as if ostracizing is really happening, which puts kids today in this era of social media, and especially it looks like girls because girls have this, you know, heightened estrogen immune response, in a state where immunologically they're caught in fight, flight, freeze. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. It's crazy. I mean, and, and so many people, we see this playing out every day of our lives and the people that we, we love. Um, what Some of the tools that you talk about in the book of how to shift our microglial cells from being an assassin to an angel, one of them that, that I really loved reading about is this uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, the T- TMS. Can you? I didn't know much about it, and I really loved learning about it in the book. Yeah, so um, TMS is something, um, the scientific father of this um, research at Harvard, um, Alvaro Pascual Leone, really started looking 20 years ago at what would happen if you took patients who were not responding to antidepressants, and you began to use treat the brain as an electrical organ. So, you know, we know that our heart is an electrical organ. I certainly know it. I have a pacemaker because of some of my autoimmune stuff. Um, the brain is also functioning as an electrical computer, sort of. And what would happen if you could reboot the electrical pulse of the brain? Would that, in some way, affect these synaptic connections between neurons, which would, of course, mean that microglia are backing off, right? You can't have neurogenesis if microglia are still attacking synapses in the hippocampus and other areas of the brain. So he began taking patients who were treatment-resistant and not responding to antidepressants and psychotherapy and giving them doses of these very low pulses outside the brain. It's non-invasive. I sat in with a patient who got over 30 treatments, and it sounds um, kind of like your cell phone if it starts buzzing and knocking against a hard table, right, when it's ringing. And it delivers this very gentle pulse to the brain. And over time, researchers can see as they look at the brain through live scans by connecting electrodes to a patient's scalp, they can see how it begins to change the connectivity in different areas of the brain. And it's pretty fascinating. And that is one of a number of ways that researchers are trying to shift the activity of microglia in ways that will mm. help synaptic connectivity to boot back up. So, and you mentioned how many sessions are, are, are is it being looked at to be effective? The TMS twenty four to thirty, twenty four to thirty, and they're yeah. quick sessions too, right? They're not very long. Yeah, they're twenty minutes. Um, the okay. ones that I sat in on with a patient, I followed a patient for over a year. Um, they're about twenty minutes. Um, Often psychotherapy is happening at the same time, mm-hmm. so a really, really good practitioner will have looked at tens of thousands of brain scans mm-hmm. over time as they're delivering this therapy. And I want to be clear that, you know, for listeners, you know, we're all hoping to get help for ourselves and our loved ones. It's really important as you look at a new therapy like this that you're looking for someone with this fund of knowledge and... and um, and, and doing these therapies in a way that you're with someone who understands the intricacies of brain connectivity and brain health. 
Mm-hmm. And another modality that you talk about is uh, neurofeedback as, as being yeah, promising as well. That, yeah. um, can you explain what neurofeedback is and, and the research around that? Yeah, sure. So mm-hmm. neurofeedback has been around forever. Um, it's been pretty ignored by the scientific field for a long time because um, we just didn't understand how it might work. Now, with our newer understanding that the brain is functioning as an immune organ, but also an electrical organ, and our new understanding, for instance, that gamma waves in the brain, when they become um, altered, we know that we're seeing synaptic loss associated with Alzheimer's. Now that we have a better understanding of how brain waves are related to mood states and cognition, neurofeedback is a way for practitioners to help patients train the brain so that brain waves start to behave um, optimally again. Mm -hmm. And it has, there are far fewer studies about neurofeedback than there are about antidepressants, partially because, you know, no one's really funding neurofeedback studies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in in the double blind randomized clinical trials that we do have, which are admittedly small, it has the same efficacy rate of antidepressants. So mm-hmm. it's getting a new look. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more understanding about neurofeedback and how it works to help these synapses to reconnect and microglia to back off. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've, I've done neurofeedback a few times, and I've been amazed by, by how personally how effective it's been. And it's sort of like a zero-risk approach. I mean, I'd much rather do that than pop some SSRIs and um, and it's not to say that and that it's like a, uh, you know it's, it's works for everyone or that it's going to be incredibly effective, but it was something that totally blew my mind when when I did it. And I think that what you said is really important. You know, you it it, it we're not looking for silver bullets here. Right. Just as you guys talk about the immune system, you're not looking for a silver bullet. You're looking for all the different ways we have agency. Mm-hmm in non-harmful ways Mm -hmm. to approach our health from top to bottom. And I think that this this understanding of the brain as an immune organ opens the door to that discussion. Different things are going to work for different people. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book like very very nicely, the, this sort of toolbox analogy where it's going to be a different collection of things that you can bring in and maybe like fasting mimicking diet is going to help autophagy and brain repair more for somebody than others and then you, someone else can try the, the TMS or a collection of other things. So I think that's a good point. And another emerging uh, treatment or modality that you mentioned in the book is ketamine, which we've talked mm-hmm. about with Will Sue on the show. But I love the fact that you pointed to evidence that the benefits of ketamine is this, it lowers uh, inflammation and uh, works upon the microglial cells. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and and I even have an update about that since the book wrapped and came out. And I've been following a study at Mayo Clinic and five other, five research institutions. I actually just wrote a piece about this for for STAT. Um, And this five-arm um, double-blind study looked at patients who had treatment-resistant depression and bipolar. These are people for whom multiple drugs have failed, um, and they looked at biomarkers for, you guys are going to love this, physical inflammation, mm-hmm. IL-6, um, you know, C-reactive protein, and many other biomarkers for physical inflammation and physical disease. They then 
use those biomarkers to predict who might respond to ketamine treatment based on the theory that people who haven't responded to SSRIs and other antidepressants may not respond because runaway neuroinflammation has reached a threshold that makes it harder for antidepressants to work. So using those biomarkers, they are trying to predict which patients will respond to ketamine. And it's looking, and the study data isn't fully wrapped, so I have to be careful what I say, but it is looking to be the case that ketamine, we will start to know who will respond to ketamine most before treatment begins, which is pretty important because it is an invasive treatment. It is expensive. It is time-consuming. It is a big decision for people. And we will have more clues as to in which patients it will be helpful based on the fact that these are patients with more brain-body inflammation. Pretty fascinating. And these are the kinds of things we're going to start to see more and more of. Biomarkers for disorders of the brain Mm -hmm. married to treatments for disorders of the brain And over the next 10 years, I think we're going to see a sea change in our understanding of who needs what, Mm -hmm. how um, rampant neuroinflammation is in which patient. We can already see that in concussion. And which then we can use those same biomarkers to look at how different treatments may or may not be working. Mm, So good. Dr. Amen says that psychiatry is the only field of medicine that doesn't look Look at the brain, at the the organ that it's treating. (laughs) Uh, And that's kind of what you're saying is emerging, that people are going to start looking at these biomarkers to gauge at at what can be impacting mental health. I'm trying, guys. I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And you also talk earlier in the book at this concept of inflammation, at driving neuroinflammation, uh, inflammation of the brain, is, and I never heard of these studies before, the bone marrow transplant. Oh, this is fascinating. Can you yeah. tell people about that? I thought I mean, it was You really gave one cool. case of someone who, who was schizophrenic and they, and, they were, and, and they were given a bone marrow transplant and, and were no longer diagnosed as schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah, so um, around that same time as we started, you and I, uh, the three of us started talking, I was talking about my own um, search into this brain-body connection. I started keeping this file, right? I'm a science nerd. I'm a journalist. So I kept this little file called Brain Flame in my office, even though I was <laughs> writing a different book at the time. And every time I saw an epidemiological study, you know, linking MS and cognition changes, um, I put it in this file, and there appeared several case studies that floored me. And in one, a patient who received a bone marrow transplant from his brother who had schizophrenia developed schizophrenia a few weeks later. Like that should, if the brain and body are separate, if there is a blood brain barrier, that shouldn't happen. You know, our bone marrow is where a lot of our immune cells are born, and, and, uh, they come out then to do battle for our body. So I just, I read this case study in a journal and I put it in there. And then another case study came out showing that a patient with schizophrenia who received a bone marrow transplant had his schizophrenia resolved. So, so wow, you know, that tells us that there is some connection between immune cells in the body and activity in the brain that will shift inflammation for 
good or ill from cradle to grave in the brain. So those were some of the early studies that made me start going around to all of my neuroscientist friends and neuroimmunologist friends at the best labs really in the world. And around that same time, a few of them started telling me, it was really 2011, wow, you have to look at this little cell called microglia. We are, ha- we are going to have to rewrite our medical textbooks. Thank you guys for joining us with our conversation with Donna Jackson Nakazawa. That whole idea that social media and being ostracized can impact, you know, turn on the fight or flight uh, mode and literally that this is a part of the defense mechanism that in, in evolutionary times when we were bands, tribes of hunter-gatherers, if you broke your ankle, you were left behind, you were ostracized. So your immune system had to actually kick into gear to protect you from any kind of pathogen or uh, infection or, or attack. And that we're in a heightened state of like immune response is crazy. I mean, yeah. It's totally nuts. And that we, our body doesn't know the difference. Right. We're, we we're, it's in this sympathetic fight or flight state all the time. And how that is a component, at the very least, a major component to to many people's mental health yeah. problems. So yeah, it's definitely a really important conversation. One of my favorite chapters was that sort of genetic epigenetic mismatch and the the modern brain braindemic, she calls it mm-hmm. in the book, of how so much of our modern times are impacting our health. You can learn more about Donna Jackson Nakazawa at Donna, D-O-N-N-A, Jackson Nakazawa, that's N-A-K-A-Z-A-W-A.com. And make sure to grab a copy of her new book, The Angel and the Assassin, out now. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, the reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. So let's have another Ask Me Anything. This one comes from Mike. He wants to know, who is your best friend? Well, besides you, Seamus, oh, I would really say so sweet. <laughs> I would say my wife, honestly, is. Yeah. Like, that's not just, I'm not just saying that. Just, we've been together since I was 20 years old. Which and, is like two years ago. Yeah. For those right, of you who have Googled Will and know what he looks like. <laughs> No, I mean, it's a long, been a long time, and it's it's cool to get to grow up with somebody in that mm-hmm. way. So yeah, I would say Amber for sure. Yeah, no, I'm, I would have been, I would have been uh, upset if you hadn't said Amber. <laughs> I'm sure she would have been even more upset. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? For me, I think I throw out the term best friend all the time. I'm like, oh, my best friend this and my best friend that, and, and folks are always like, well, how many best friends do you have? And I have, I have a lot. Um, yeah, I. I'm going to say my partner Katie. She's she's pretty amazing and uh, yeah, cracks me up. But I, I was really lucky. I went to boarding school, and the guys that I lived in my dorm with are still my closest friends. So it's been quite a while, and I'm still really close to them. We uh, for a long time we all lived together. We all lived in New York, so we saw each other every day. But ironically, I end up texting or talking on the phone with my closest friends uh, nearly nearly every day. Um, so I've got wow. lots of friends and. And then some some new friends have come to my life in the past ten years. Uh, my friend Andy, who runs a, a great cycling tour guide company called Duvine, 
Um, and he and I are super tight. And uh, but yeah, my 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 old boys. I have a, I have a really good really good crew. That's great. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.